you don't have to be you don't have to be a psychopath to be in the managerial class, but you have to kind of be a bit psychopathic. Welcome back, everyone. We've been gone for a while. Mind Matters has been slacking off for the past month or so. We've actually just been really busy with other things. and But we're back for one last episode of the year. And today it will be to recommend a source and to talk about some of the articles from that source. The source is an, a relatively new Substack launched this year, well, two months ago, so yeah, new, called The Circulation of Elites, written by Michael McConkie. Michael is the author of several self-published books. He is He has a PhD from McGill University, and he's taught and written articles, and he, he writes and teaches on things like political economy, organizational and cultural theory, evolutionary psychology. So this is his latest book, The Managerial, Managerial Class on Trial, which I just recently read. And his blog, The Circulation of Elites, is right now there's a, a number of articles on it, maybe, maybe around 10, just under 10 and the description of the substack is, oh, I lost it. It is, oh, now it won't come up for me. Well, it's uh, basically analyzing the intersection of the Italian realist school of politics and uh, pathocracy. So Michael has read Ponderology and he's kind of incorporating some of those ideas and expanding on them and putting, putting his take on them. So uh, Michael commented on, our, um, on one of our uh, videos a while ago. And so that's how I found out about his work and, and got into it. So we're going to be talking a bit about his articles, rec talking about some of his ideas, how they intersect with Ponderology, um, recommending his work, and then just seeing kind of how the, dis how the discussion goes for the rest of the uh, for the rest of our last episode of the year. So, for instance, on his article, he's got, uh, he's got, uh, or on his substack, he's got some, I'll read just some of the names of the, of the articles. So, why circulation of the elites, or why the circulation of elites, psychopaths and the managerial class, how homology in modus operandi risks pathocratic capture. And we've got pathocratic capture of the surplus elites class coup, Vaccines, Trump, and what's next? What's next? The psychorium, things like that. So these are some topics that we've discussed uh, on the show beforehand, and Michael kind of brings a, a new perspective and, and new new sources and new ways of thinking about them. So that's why we recommend his work. Um, so, for instance, the the article "Pathocratic Capture of the Surplus Elites Class Coup" that's with reference to Peter Turchin's work, which we discussed on a couple shows. The idea of elite overproduction and the kind of structural demographic shifts and, and cycles that, which relate to the hysteroidal cycle in ponderology and the kind of effects that has and how Turchin identified that the, the, the feature to look at as a like diagnostic criterion for the collapse of a civilization or a culture or a, um, a revolutionary um, climate that, that could risk the, the outbreak of a, you know, a, a culture sh or a society shattering revolution is primarily the, the overproduction of elites. That's not the only factor, but that's the most predictive one. So he's got his political stress 
index, which takes various different measures of the things going on in any different in any given society at a uh, at any given time. Things like just general well-being and elite overproduction, and then you can plot those on a curve, and that's what he does in his book, Ages of Discord, for American society. And if anyone remembers the show we did on that or has read the book, he basically showed that there were two, two periods in American history where that stress index just kind of rose... Um, like almost expo- well exponentially and almost off the charts. And that was just prior to the Civil War and right now, these past few years, these past five years or so. So Turchin is, just like Lobachevsky was, one of the people warning that this time is a, this time is a very precarious one and big things can happen. And as we see in history with examples like the, the Russian Revolution, anytime there's a big change like that, well, even the Civil War in the States, that can lead to, to violence, political violence. It can lead to the collapse of empires, the collapse of societies. And um, Turchin recommends some things to do to hopefully mitigate that, but I think even he th- says it's probably too late. So with that said, first, I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about the blog, because once I read it, I recommended it to you guys. So I think you guys have been reading it in the last few days. What do you thought? Um, I jumped in uh, yesterday and just devoured the whole thing in one go. <laughs> yeah, luckily there aren't, well, on the one hand, luckily there aren't too many articles yeah. yet, but on the other, I wish there were more, right? Yeah, so, it, that's... Michael, keep writing. Yes, because uh, they were they were very insightful. Uh, and and nuanced and uh you know brilliant is the right word i think um like you mentioned he he pulls all of these different threads that we had been working on or pulling on as well separately and teases out some new insights that i hadn't heard of before like uh the managerial class Mm -hmm. as an example as a perfect example because then i after reading hit or well, actually, before I read uh, his Substack, I actually listened to a uh, a, a talk that he gave for a Libertarian Party, mm-hmm. I think somewhere in Canada, mm-hmm. um, where he was talking about these two Marxists who were uh, also like uh, I think they were also Italian realists um, or Italian like real politics, however you phrase that, mm-hmm. um, who were able to come at Marxism from a different angle than a true believer. And so they were able to gain insights using Marxism Mm -hmm. uh, about the way system, the way our system functions and works. And, and that's where the, the idea of the managerial class came from was from their works. Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a really good example of of what's going on and how to conceptualize what what we see in the world because there's not this bourgeois class and uh, proletariat and, and that's it. There's an extra layer in between there that they call the managerial class. Yeah, uh, I think who they term like s- symbol manipulators. Yeah, um, 
and that you know symbol manipulators would be like a politician or a journalist or um or like a literal, philosopher or literal managers literal managers yeah. uh, as another example um and so that yeah that's why i just devoured the whole thing in one go because it it tied everything together and it had all these new ideas and concepts and it was just super interesting mm -hmm. so that was what i wanted to say was like you know good job yeah. because that was great well, well then you'll like you'll like his book it just came out it came out earlier this year i think right at the beginning of the year um and it's all about the managerial class so he talks about those those scholars that uh, or he writes about those scholars that he um that he mentioned in that talk, I, I'm guessing, and how well he did, his position. He kind of describes himself as a right wing. I, was it right wing Marxist or conservative Marxist? I think right wing Marxist. Um, but the the reason for that is kind of like like as you said, these that there are certain things about like a, a Marxist analysis that kind of makes sense and work, right? There are mm -hmm. some things that are just dead wrong about Marxism, mm -hmm. like a you know, surplus theory of value and a bunch of other things, and just total misunderstanding of human nature. But there is, when it comes to class analysis, there is yes. some interesting stuff there. So these, these Marxist guys were looking at the managerial class from a Marxist perspective. And when you do that, and when McConkie does it, you see that you can use a, a class-based analysis to come to some pretty interesting conclusions about what's been going on. And one of the conclusions that he raises in several of the parts of this book is he basically looks at all of the revolutions, well, all the like major Western revolutions in the past hundred and hundred plus years. Mm -hmm. So you have fascism in Italy, you have Nazism in Germany, Bolshevism in the USSR, and then you've got the the kind of unnamed revolution in the western world which he calls the managerial revolution and they're basically all faces of the same thing they're all managerial revolutions it was just that they were they were successful in different ways and put their emphasis on different on different things in different countries but it was they were all managerial revolutions and what they all had in common or one of the things they all had in common is that well what do symbol manipulators do well how do they gain power well it is through the exploitation of and the just the, the kind of Machiavellian use of the idea of popular sovereignty. So it's the idea of our will, like the, the will of the party, the will of the revolutionary party, the will of the managers, the will of, of the new class is the will of the people. And if you can get the people to believe that you are representing their will or that, that, that such a will even exists and that it can be represented in the form of some, some body, some class, some group, some revolutionary party, then you can get to power. That's essentially what Lobachevsky is talking about when he talks about ideology. He's talking mm -hmm. about it specifically in a in the psychopathological um, manner when you have actual actual Machiavellians in the in the psychological sense. So people with like high uh, high in psychopathic traits and uh, psychopathic um, you know Machiavellian, sadistic, narcissistic, the 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 dark triad or the dark tetrad um, personality traits. These are the kind of people. Um, that that exploit that in a in a ponderogenic way, in a, path, in a pathocratic way, to to reference Lobachevsky, um, and McConkie actually actually brings up dark triad and uh, traits and psychopathy in this book in a couple sections. He mentions it, and then he's got he kind of expands on it in the in one of his Substack articles. But that's essentially what the managerial class does. 
and that's so they were able to do that um, in in all of these different countries over the over the past hundred or so years. And in the West, it has taken the form of what he calls managerial liberalism. Mm -hmm. So it's the the liberal version of of the managerial takeover. So it has some differences with you know communism and fascism. Again, but there but again there are differences in emphases. So like in the in the managerial liberalism, there hasn't been as much um, like emphasis on like revolutionary violence, for instance. But I, one of the points he makes is that part of the reason that was probably the case and that the managerial class was able to to gain power in the in the West in a in such a way, well, there is the history of of liberal ideas, but just one as one example, in Russia there was a, a big revolution because Russia didn't have like a, a capitalist class really any of any significant amount in the early 1900s, whereas the West did. And it's so for for that managerial revolution to, to happen, he goes over all the dynamics. I can't remember them. We'll we'll, we'll try to have him on um, sometime in 2022 to talk about his work, so we can get the the details that that we either don't understand or forget or mm-hmm. just bungle. But but the managerial revolution. Just the the point I want to make is that the, the managerial the managerial revolution in the Western world has been for the people living in that world. Um, aside from like in in Germany, um, over the past 50, 70 years, has been relatively benign on the local population. When you compare it to like the Gulag and and you know Mao's China, um, it's you know it, you'd you'd want to raise your kids in the West as opposed to those those times in those countries, you know, any day of the week, right? Preferably for their entire childhoods. So, but. To, to to segue a bit into the Substack article, in his in his Substack on that subject on the managerial class, he makes an interesting point, and this has to do with the nature of the managerial class, because by its very nature, the man, managerial class is like a ventriloquist. It like. And this is why this is why in the West, at least, and in other countries too, there's the the common perception of politicians as liars. Right? It's just what it's just what they do. That's what you have to do to to get into it. That's what you have to do to work in it. You have to be you have to be a bit Machiavellian. Now, but the point he makes this is, I think, one of those nuanced points you were referencing, um, Adam, is that you don't have to be you don't have to be a psychopath to be in the managerial class. But you have to kind of be a bit psychopathic. You have to have, that's what he calls homology. You have to have a certain um, like behavioral um, profile that you either have to, well, you either have to be psychopathic or you have to mold yourself to kind of be mm-hmm. like that. And when you have a whole class of people who are trained and like and cultured to be, to act in that way, then functionally, you're you're already acting like that, so it makes it makes it that much easier for a real psychopath or a group of real psychopaths to infiltrate the the movement, the class, and take over, mm-hmm. and to lead to an actual pathocracy. So you have kind of like pathocracy light and 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 you know hardcore pathocracy. You've got the a bunch of people who who just act that way. They're for all intents and purposes functionally psychopathic, even they, if they aren't diagnosable. They have to act like that in certain ways, but then. 
when you when you're acting like that, and that's just your way of being, and that's the way your entire like ruling class operates, well then you're not going to be able to spot when an actual like forty out of forty <laughs> psychopath on the PCLR you know mm-hmm. worms his way into your um, into your institution. And that when I read that, and when I was reading his book, I was reminded of something that. Uh, that Jordan Peterson said in a Jordan Peterson said in a conversation with Michael Malice. I didn't watch the whole conversation, but um, I saw this little bit. They were talking. They were talking about kind of like, uh, um, you know, the elites. And Michael Malice, of course, is like total anarchist, and Jordan Peterson is more conservative. And so they were having a bit of a back and forth, a bit of a disagreement on the nature of what was going on. Well, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was in this conversation that Peterson said this, but he, he pointed out that not everyone, like not all of the politicians are like that. Because I think Malice had said something like, oh, they all have, you, you have to be a psychopath or, or something like that to, to be in politics. It's just, you have to be. <clears throat> and Peterson said, Peterson disagreed and said he didn't think it's like that because he, He's spoken with a lot of politicians. He knows a lot of young politicians. And so his perspective was that he's seen these guys, he's talked to them, these people. And when you, when you first meet them, it's almost like um, you can see that they're decent people, that they're idealistic, that they, that they want to do good things. Um, and who knows how much of that is just um, misreading a person or the, the impression they want to give across. But Peterson seemed to think <clears throat> that they were genuine. And this is genuine, genuinely what a lot of people who like become congressmen um, are like. But then as soon as you get into the system, you realize what you can and can't do. And you realize, mm-hmm. and you just kind of, you become part of the, part of the Borg. You, just, you, you, um, you have to shape your, shape yourself and what you do and how you do it into that way of doing, of, of, of being, of doing things. And part of that is spending like 80% of your time calling people for money. Yeah. Um, well, M- McConkie has an excellent term that he uses that he, I, as far as I understand, it's the first time I've heard of it. He calls it the uh, psychorium, mm-hmm. which is this kind of um, pathological space that this managerial class, uh, the psychological space that they live in that is uh, ubiquitous, that, um, that is so much a part of the the normalized uh, thinking, and um, all of the appropriated use of language, and the um, the kind of ownership of of the ideologies that that managerial class is using in order to foist itself into a position of leadership uh, for um, the people that they want support from. Uh, this psychorium is um, it's. It's this this cloud of of uh, thinking that constantly seeks to uh, empower itself further and to twist the, the thinking of individuals who are not only in the ma- managerial class, but um, who, the general pop, the ge- general public. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought it was an excellent coin of phrase. His descriptions um, of how it exists. And, and what it serves to do are, uh, I think, right on line with Lobachevsky's work. Mm-hmm. And um, his, his blog reminded me quite a bit of uh, 
the way that James Lindsay several months ago had come out with his few articles, also having read political ponderology and also um, made use of the concepts to expand on, on what it is that we're witnessing in the West at the moment. And uh, it's as though McConkie had, you know, it's sort of like a, a moment of recognition on his part. You can see the lights going off in, in the numbers of times that he, he references Lobachevsky mm -hmm. in the numbers of ways he chooses to expand on certain uh, definitions and, and even fine tune them, as you were saying before, Adam. Um, it, and it suggests to me that, uh, that ponderology is this kind of, um, uh, this core uh, work uh, that people who have been studying uh, this problem of, of psychopaths in positions of power or how uh, political ideology has been um, appropriated and weaponized against uh, large parts of the population. Uh, you know, it, th there's this, um, there's this, it, it's almost like a, a holy grail of, of study that can now be um, uh, brought to further awareness for people. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think one of the things that I find so interesting, especially in, in this series of uh, blog posts, is that he's, uh, McConkie's trying to say, okay, we have this body of information now, with this understanding that uh, I'm still working out for myself. Uh, however, how do we apply that to forming a, some kind of solution? Or how do we address uh, this, this uh this growing um, potential of, of atrocity uh, that we know that the pathologized politicians and the managerial class are so capable of, because we have this elite class that's in power. And we also have a group of people who are um, part of the managerial class who, who see the problem, but in order to address the problem, uh, they are, they are dependent upon the most brazen and perhaps the most um, pathologized individuals in their uh, section of the managerial class to to make change. So you know we're in a, we're in a kind of conundrum in that um, you know short of a it's like well what do you do about it? Mm -hmm. You know do do you do you act just as crazy or empower? Uh, insane people to to throw out the current uh, cadre of insane people? No. You don't. You can't. You, because the whole point is that you want to take a kind of higher moral ground to to the types you, of things that you're You want seeing. to avoid it from happening again. Yes. And and that's that's part of the, the paradox of the whole thing. How uh, short of bringing great awareness to the problem, what what is the mechanism for which, you know, the the pathocratic, um, you know, psychorium can be removed like a malignant cancer. Well, there was uh, two things that I wanted to say uh, in regards to that. The first thing, well, actually, it's two separate things, but uh, going back to what you were saying earlier, Harrison, about how Jordan Peterson 
was talking about his experience with like people who were getting into politics. Uh, an example that just came to my mind was the new TV show on Netflix called Arcane, mm. where there's uh, a, yeah. a scientist who's a very good-hearted, good-natured scientist who's actually trying to do uh, something to make, the world to, a better place. to make the world a better place, very Silicon Valley-esque, uh, and actually ends up getting into a political position. And you watch him literally struggle mm -hmm. with trying to reconcile the good things that he wants to do and the system as it is. And he does go through that transformation as you were talking about where once you're a part of the system, you actually have to become part of the Borg. Mm -hmm. As much as you don't really want to, you have to. In order to make anything work, in order to make any kind of inroad or progress within the system, you have to play within the system. And that's just the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a, a really good example that I would throw out there, uh, not only because it's a good example, but also because the show is really good and yeah. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, so there was that. And then the other thing, uh, like you were talking about, Alon, what do you do with this information? You, you, part of the, part of the thing that he's doing is just coming to terms with the nature of the phenomena, the nature of the reality in which we live. And that is, and so, and his approach to it is grounded in reality. He talks about uh, somebody's political formula, where it seems like generally speaking, a, a lot of uh, like political commentators and stuff, it's just like magical hand waving. You know, if we just do this, all will be perfect and we will reach utopia. If we just get these different elite people in, you know, if we actually go towards a, a true uh, Marxist revolution, then all will be perfect and wonderful, you know, hand waving. And, that, and that's, that's, you know, dreaming, that's not real, that's not the way reality works or things actually work. And so it's uh, the same thing with the psychorium, you know, what do you do about it? How do you approach it without falling prey to the very same things that the people you're trying to, you know, right. battle against do, which is dream a reality, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that I really appreciated uh, about his work is, or what he was writing in the Substack was that, you know, it it's very enticing to latch onto this dream Mm -hmm. dream fix this dream utopian magical thinking it's yeah. very very uh attractive but it's not useful it's not helpful it's not practical and it won't solve any problems we've seen it time and again they never work it never works that way mm -hmm. so we have to be real about it and so he is trying to come at it from a very real practical yeah. way yeah and that's that's one of the points that comes across in his books um i'll mention a couple of them uh, well, I'll bring up some points from them too, but on the, on the nature, on the subject of realism, um, like the political realism or biological realism. So for instance, you may, you mentioned that there's always, there's this elite class in, in power, right? Well, the, one of the points of political realism and well, grounded in biological realism is that there is always an elite class. There always has been, there always will be. And so one of the points that, that he makes in the managerial class on trial, <clears throat> quotes some studies and basically some like anthropologists and, uh, and probably with some archeology span in there to, to recreate kind of human history and get an idea of what's been going on in all the stages of human history. So there's this, there's kind of the view that um, 
that in some ways society like hunter-gatherer society or so yeah society was more like egalitarian and in certain ways that's true and so he goes through the history of of the things that that made it that way and one of those was just um like the, the egalitarianism of of meat and basically how to survive like a tribe hunting big game would have to collaborate and you'd have different hunters like a group of hunters that would take down like a mastodon or something and and then ha they'd have food for the tribe and the f and the f and everyone got meat because if some didn't you know you'd well it it that's the way it worked that's the way it worked for the tribe to survive and so that was a that's deeply ingrained in human psychology is this is a type of egalitarianism a type of push for egalitarianism and he goes through the ways in which that's kind of um, that has manifested itself over over history and into the present. <clears throat> but even then, at those times, and the ways things develop, the ways in which things developed, there there always was an elite class. It was the the male heads of the household, the 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 the, the pater familias, the the head of the family, the the man, the father of the family. And these were like if you look at Roman society, these were the the heads of the household. These were the voters. These were the senators. And that that has replicated itself more or less throughout you know all of history, and those, so that was the those were the the those were the elites, and the, and there were when you when you reach a certain like population over I don't know what it is I'm going to guess like somewhere over 300 or something like that, that's going to develop. And so part of realism, part of political realism, realism is realizing that that's not going to change. We have to somehow work with that because mm -hmm. the idealistic utopian way is that, oh, well, let's, well, let's, let's just eliminate class. Let's eliminate a, uh, an elite class, a ruling class. Well, it's not going to work and it's not going to work for several, several reasons having to do with human nature, just mm -hmm. the way humans are. And that's not to say that things can't be better in certain ways, um, but certain things aren't going to work if your root assumptions are wrong. So this is another thing that, well, this is the reason I, th I think, um, and I'd, I'd like to talk to Michael about this, but um, why I think that, that he appreciates some of the things in, in Ponderology is because he'd actually worked out some very similar ideas for himself prior to, to reading the books, and, and they come across in, in his works. So one of those is in this book, which he released in 2018, I believe. Let me just double check. Yeah, 2018. So this one's called Darwinian Liberalism. So we talked about how you know, solutions and how he's writing this blog to see, well, what can we actually do about this? So he's, he's given some solutions in his previous works. So I'm interested to see if and how those solutions have changed or been modified over the last year or so. Um, so hopefully when we have him on, we can, uh, we can talk about that. Did but, he, in a comment, uh, the one that he made on YouTube, did he say, uh, what did he say exactly? Was oh, it? he was, I think he criticized our use of our, our, um, uh, how to put it? Our sloppy use of the words like right wing and left wing, <laughs> because we we weren't uh, we th there was like a video from a few like two or three years ago or something I don't know maybe I'm exaggerating but we we were kind of sloppy in the way we were using those terms and not you know differentiating the all the varieties that can kind of fit in there and the differences so I'm like yeah good point uh, hopefully we've gotten a bit better at that but uh, that's uh, I think that was the original comment that he made um, with a bunch of other stuff but one of the points that's very resonant with Lobachevsky that he makes in this book is that there are, the reason that liberalism doesn't work, and you can see that in such works as, you know, um, like The God That Failed and, and the, the books 
that um, by the Polish authors that we've interviewed, like Zbigniew Yanowski and and um, um, Richard Lekutko, their books and others. It's like, well, why has this happened? And there's some some conf- you know disagreement over why that's the case. If if lib- if there's something inherently wrong wrong with liberalism that in, that that it, that it inherently and you know inevitably leads to to the kinds of problems we see, or if it's been like a, a like a, a foreign infection that that you know oh it would have worked if not for for you know all the the radicals in the '60s or something like that. But the point that McConkie makes in Darwinian liberalism, it's well the book itself is an attempt to to update liberalism based on um, what we know about psychology and human nature, and which is very much um, a, a project that Lobachevsky would endorse if he were alive mm-hmm. today. That's yeah. explicitly what he says about what needs to be done to, to like the existing ideologies. They either need to be thrown out completely because they've totally failed, or be you know upgraded and and re reevaluated based on our understanding of of biology and psychology. Mm-hmm. And so, in Darwinian liberalism, McConkie identifies the two the two basic um, wrong assumptions that are baked into liberalism from the very beginning and that need to be that need to be corrected if liberalism is going to work and if the good things about liberalism are going to be able to survive without leading to another managerial revolution which um, seems to make it very easy for a pathocracy to develop as we saw in Nazi Germany and Soviet Union wasn't so successful in Italy with the with the fascists, and it hasn't at least um, you know I don't think it's been totally successful in the in the Western world. The managerial um, revolution has been totally successful, like they are at the very top, but it hasn't been totally pathocratic in the sense in the exact sense that Lobachevsky describes. Mm-hmm. But it has weakness. It has these weaknesses in it that make that. That make that trajectory probably um, inevitable, um, and for the reason that we mentioned earlier, that the managerial class is functionally psychopathic in in the Machiavellian sense, in the in the, um, the just the mask of sanity. It, it is based on pretending to be something you're not. It is based on um, adopting the adopting the so-called will of the people um, and co-opting any opposition and creating opposition. Um, one thing I want to look more into that he, that he references numerous times is this thing called artificial negativity, which as far as I can tell is kind of like um, fake opposition or co-opted opposition, but we can, um, we can learn more about that and see if, see if I'm a bit wrong and uh, need to be more, more or less nuanced. But the two root um, faulty assumptions baked into liberalism that McConkie identifies are two things that are identified as foundational principles that need to be um, understood in like chapter two of, of Ponderology, where he's talking about human nature. And these are the things that need to be taken into account um, just like bottom line. Otherwise, politics will fail. You know, society will, will go in bad directions, will be um, <coughs> vulnerable to pathocratic takeover. Um, Lobachevsky lists, lists a number. But the two that McConkie focuses on are the blank slate psychology and the the idea um, of the possibility of equality. Now, let me see how exactly he phrases that. Yeah. Um, okay. Two of the section, 
titles, yeah, Blank Slate, Equality of Opportunity, but what is opportunity? Um, he's got a few ways that he, that he phrases the, the equality idea, um, like the, the possibility of natural equality or something like that. But basically the two ideas are, are that human nature is essentially a blank slate and you can just put whatever you want into it and shape people according to your, to, to whatever you want. And this is the kind of a root assumption of, um, communism, for instance, that that's the, that was one of the, the basic premises of, of, if you could call it Marxist or communist psychology was that we can shape people to be, um, like the new men, the, the new, new socialist men or whatever. And uh, that idea is, is baked into liberalism and as well as the idea that this, this equality idea, um, that how does Lobachevsky put it? He says, equality, inequality under, oh, what was it? Well, basically, um, inequality is a part of nature and it's actually, it's actually a gift of nature. Now it's a gift that, uh, you know, a stick has two ends, and um, and so there are positive and, and negative qualities to it. But when it comes down to it, we've discussed this on the show before too. There are there are many positive things about inequality. Without inequality, we wouldn't have excellence in any way. We wouldn't have innovations. We wouldn't have inventions. We wouldn't have good music. We wouldn't have good art. We wouldn't have good philosophy. We wouldn't have good science. We'd just all be average schmucks that um, don't produce anything of import or anything that stands out above the crowd. That's the, the definition of inequality or of excellence. Um, the, two, the two go hand in hand. They're essentially synonymous. In order to be um, excellent, you have to, there has to be an inequality involved. And liberalism is kind of premised on the idea that, that everyone is somehow naturally equal. And there you can kind of like maneuver around and, and, and try to, try to, try to sneak in some, some natural inequality into there. But, but with those as basic premises, then that creates the opportunity for, um, well, utopianism for social engineering policies, for just the, the idea that, oh, well, all we have to do is shape the, shape the people to, to go along with what we want. Um, and essentially because, because that goes so go, because it goes so against human nature, it's like um, it's like, well, reality kind of hits you like a brick wall, and so if there's this brick wall in front of you, you have to try to smash through that wall, and that's what the gulag is. That's what that's what political repression is. It's trying it's trying to bash bash the well if i can't form your your blank slate mind the way the way i want to well maybe i'll just bash your head against this wall and and that'll make it work and the 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 means used to try to realize that goal become more and more extreme because you're you're butting your head up against human nature against something that you cannot change and that was something that you see in uh the critical race theorists where you abolishing whiteness it, it's used in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different contexts and most of it's kind of a uh, uh like a trojan horse thing mm -hmm. where they're saying you know we're going to abolish whiteness which means you know structuring things differently but really what they're actually talking about for some of these people is literally killing everyone who's white and that's kind of where you can take the the blank slate thing to its kind of logical end, where the only way to get around the people who are already programmed according to this, you know, white mm -hmm. capitalist system 
is to just kill them because there's nothing yeah. else that you can do because and they're already fresh. yeah and start fresh but then you run into the problem it's like okay so you kill all the white people well then you have everybody who's still indoctrinated according to your own analysis uh, along those lines so then you have to kill them but then you yourself are also uh programmed uh, subconsciously along those lines too so then you have to kill yourself and, and everyone just has to die basically uh, mm-hmm. in order for that to really fulfill its own prophesied uh solution yes and and that's the that's the uh the machiavellian trap of this whole uh, appropriation of ideology that is that most of the people who are being the loudest uh most vociferous proponents of it do not realize how they in fact are being used by powerful interests and the interests that that are working against their own best interests and how uh, it would seem to be the case in in many instances of this sort of thing occurring in history that it's those very people who were the loudest and most vociferous that are the first to go and we've said this before on the show as well that uh, they they are perhaps more than anyone the biggest victims of their own um, succumbing to to the ideology uh, because they don't realize that there are levels uh, at which these movements are being played out, which are being orchestrated, which have been uh, manipulated and paid for and uh, fed upon uh, to affect certain changes. And uh, we see this across the board um, in the way that uh, non-governmental organizations and think tanks and uh, and elements of academia and the media um, have all been uh, implementing their own um, uh, their own um, well they they're doing this to empower themselves uh, in the short term uh, but they are really just being motivated and uh, stimulated to to push this agenda forward because they see what's in it for themselves um so it's a it's a an extremely destructive dynamic that um that that works like an equation and the equation has been spelled out for us and we've seen it chapter for chapter occur previously and we're witnessing it occur right now and unfortunately uh most of the loudest proponents of of all of this are so um, are so identified with their emotional thinking that they that they stand little chance of uh, taking a step or, or three back from what it is that they're a part of, and from uh, looking at looking at what they're saying and what's occurring on a on a critical level. And that's really what what we're trying to do here. We're trying to uh, take the emotions out of it, the reactivity out of it, and to say, even if there's nothing that can be done in in the mass scheme of things to affect positive change, because this movement is so entrenched on so many different levels, at least, at the very least, we can examine our own thinking and understanding about how all this works. Uh... And communicate it to others who who see a piece of this for themselves and whose own knowledge base can be expanded upon to 
to further um, get a, an objective idea of, of this big, ugly picture we're looking at. Because uh, there isn't going to be a savior. You know, Trump 2024 uh, is not going to save the day. Uh, there isn't going to be a, you know, a, um, there might be some elements of progress in this corner or that corner, but uh, th there's no way that, that, that this issue as far along as it's become is going to be solved in the, in the normal course of things, because the normal course of things has been so polluted, uh, so corrupted um, that unfortunately and sadly, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at a lot of, um, a lot of destruction ahead of us. So, uh, we try and look at this as stoically as we can, so as not to get swept up on, in it. And, and, um, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're all talking to friends and family who have their opinions and who are, um, to some degree or another actually, uh, pathologized in many cases by, by this movement that we're seeing. And it becomes almost impossible to have a, uh, any kind of rational exchange using information and, and data to, to change their minds or to have them, you know, acknowledge a different, a very different perspective on the information that we're looking at. But um, I tell you with guys like McConkie and Lindsay, uh, they're so astute. It's such a pleasure to know that that this information can be um, expanded upon and and built upon, so that at least for those network of people out there who who see uh, some dimension of all of these problems, uh, that there is uh, at least at least hope for part of us uh, that. Um, we can build upon this into a future when there may be an opportunity uh, at some much later point to um, to work toward the future together. Well, uh, so I was just going to say that getting back to, you know, what we were discussing about how uh, people are, well, like you were saying, the, the people who are the most vociferous and pushing some of these uh, agendas or ideologies are going to be the first ones on the with their heads on the chopping block. And that gets into, like you were discussing, how the manager, managerial class acts with a mask of sanity, just like a psychopath. And it's, and it's the naivety of the people who are very vociferous in their beliefs uh, in certain ideas that they can't see that not only are is what they're pushing uh, an agenda with its own mask of sanity, but the people who are goading them to do those very things are also themselves wearing a mask of sanity mm -hmm. in the same way in order to get their own desires fulfilled and their own uh, ends met. Mm -hmm. uh, and so going back to how they're, there's there's neither a blank slate nor an equality of individuals that right there speaks to that as an example whereby some people are more easily hypnotized than others both in the, the literal sense of hypnotism where some people uh like sirhan sirhan can be you know instantly hypnotized and then other people no matter what you do they'll never be able to you know be hypnotized so 
there's just a, a qualitative difference between people to such an extent that there is no true equality that's possible, which stands to reason or, or yeah, so it stands to reason then that liberalism is an impossible dream unless you can update some of those core premises like you were talking about. And so it would be really interesting to me to see just what those kind of updates would be in order to uh, create a a better approach because there are certain things about liberalism that are good. And there's some things that are really uh, worth striving for mm. um, certain ideas like equality under the law, as an example, that's a major breakthrough uh, in human societies that has been a net benefit. Um, but then there's, you know, like what we're seeing today where, mm. you know, things can go off the rails because you, when you take some of these things to the extreme, as people do, as they're trying to push their agendas and so forth, that you, you end up in a very bad situation. So that was just something that I wanted to throw out there is the mm -hmm. the masks within masks and people not understanding that. And that kind of being a core problem of this whole thing is uh, a projection of the inner framework onto others and and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, Well, in, so I mentioned in Darwinian liberalism, the so one solution would be to update liberalism. <clears throat> and then in managerial class, he gives another solution. And this one was, uh, this one kind of caught me off guard. So he goes through at the end of the book, after going through the managerial revolution and describing it and, and uh, how it, how it happened and all the background, like all the psychological and biological background he says, okay, so what are some solutions? And he goes, goes through the list. Like he goes through the anarchies. So the, the leftist and, and rightist anarchies. So you've got the kind of, um, what's the, what's the libertarian anarchist position? It's like, uh, anarcho-capitalism. Anarcho-capitalism. Yeah. And then the kind of leftist socialist anarchy, anarchism, and, uh, kind of lays out the ideas and then kind of why they won't work. And then, of course, you can't just have an, uh, a reshuffling of the, the managerial revolution because it's just, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. So then he's like, okay, well, let's look at some other ones. So he looks at the reactionary and the neo-reactionary solutions. And the reactionary solution is a reversion to monarchy. And the neo-reactionary oh. is kind of a, a, a neo-monarchy. And so I won't, uh, this would actually be, an interesting discussion to have again with uh, McConkie himself, but I'll give some, just some, some teasers. So I was like, huh, well, uh, uh, hmm? huh? that's interesting because he, and he gives some good reasons. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see a, like a book length treatment on, on just those, those few sections where he lays it out. I think it's like, I don't know, 20, 20, 30 pages maybe that he devotes to that um, or in the, in the book. So I'd like to, I'd like to see, a full length, you know, a case to be made for that. Would it be something along the lines of like a benevolent dictator or? Well, partly. Um, well, because here are some of the positives about about monarchies, apparently. So if you look at even in, in the world currently, the, the, the contemporary world, there mm -hmm. are still monarchies, right? Some are constitutional monarchies. Um, where the the monarch is essentially a figurehead, and um, but there are some absolute monarchies in the in the world. One of the things about monarchies is because, um, well, essentially a king has skin in the game. A monarch has skin in the game, and they are incentivized to essentially keep a good budget. 
So the absolute monarchies in the world actually have better finances than than all most of the rest of the world. They they have the like the least amount of debt. Um, they they basically keep a budget. They don't overspend because mm-hmm. they know that essentially that's their money, and they have to. They don't just. They can't just do what the managerial class does. Um, so for just strictly fiscal reasons, there's an empirical um, argument for monarchy over any of the other alternatives. And some of the things kind of flow about that, that power arrangement. So he's not necessarily arguing for just a reversion to that the reactionary formula, like mm-hmm. uh, a reversion to the monar- monarchies as they were in whatever time period. Mm-hmm. Like, no, there are some principles to be that could theoretically be adopted and adapted in an evolutionary manner, you know, so you don't want, well, it, well, that's another discussion. But um, another thing about monarchy is that, well, what was the position, what was the purpose of the monarchy um, for, for generations, well, for a long period of time? The monarch was actually, well, there were ruling classes, right? There were aristocracies or oligarchies, and aristocracies are supposed to be um, like the the best individuals, but that that easily descends into just oligarchy, um, the few, and uh, the the few and the rich, and so the the ruling class always is out for its own interests, no matter what no matter what class it is. It's just that's just the nature of a ruling class. They want what's best for their family. They want to keep their their property. They want to expand their property, and if there's if there's ever going to be like a peasant uprising or something, they try to put that down as quickly as possible. The way that uh, the monarchy developed was essentially as the um, the monarch was essentially essentially teamed up with the people against the the ruling class as a way of keeping the the ruling class in check. Um, and so that's what like early populism was. You can see hints of that, for example, in the the populist um, the populist figures in the the late Roman Republic, like the Gracchis and and Julius Caesar and Saturninus and guys like that that uh, that allied with the people as a you know because you have if you have like you know eighty percent of the population on the bottom and then you're the one figurehead you can balance out the excesses of the ruling class but the, the ruling class also balances out the the excesses of the of the ruler and they it's kind of like a system of checks and balances not like not like in liberal societies but essentially I mean it serves a similar function it seems to me and so the the monarch would basically be like okay for the people um, what do I need the people for? I need the people for taxes and for bodies for for going to war, if we need to go to war. Now, the thing about um, most monarchic wars, like wars from the from that time period and from those those societies, is that um, like because one of the points he brings up is that uh, a possible objection to bringing back a monarchy type system anywhere in the world would be, oh, well, weren't weren't kings just always going to war with each other? And uh, well, yeah, maybe. Um, so that might be something we need to think about, but those wars were actually, um, they, 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 they're not even comparable to like a world war, um, in the world wars, the, which we, which could be termed the, the, the wars of the revolutionary, um, the the managerial revolution, all this intra, intra intra-class warfare, the managerial class in one, one country going Mm -hmm. after after the managerial class in another country and vice versa. Well, the reason that those wars were total wars, like World War I and World War II, 
was because of this myth of popular sovereignty. It was the will of the people. Mm -hmm. So the, essentially the way that this social contract works is that the people somehow like magically um, um, produce the, the, the will of the people. And the will of the people, it turns out, can be totally diametrically opposed to what the people actually want. Mm -hmm. But it is the will of the people, which the, which the rulers then go to, to war based on. Well, it's the, it's the popular will. It's the, the, it's the impersonal sovereign. The, we, don't, we no longer have a king, a personal sovereign. We have an impersonal sovereign, and we are just the, the stewards of the, of the popular will. And because it's the popular will, then people are fair game. Civilians are fair game because it's, the, it's their will through the, through, the, through the ruling class, through the ruling elite that brings them to war in the first place. So that's how you had massive civilian casualties in these wars. Whereas most of the wars, most of the, the, the kingly wars were between soldiers. Um, but again, like that's something that I, I don't have a, a, big, a great grasp on all of the history. So that's why I'd like to see, see a book length treatment or at least just do more research into it. But that's just, just one thing. So the king, the king basically um, allies with with the people as a bulwark against the the ruling class, and um, and the king is incentivized, like I said, to to keep a balanced budget, but to to not push things too hard because you can't you can't you can't piss off the ruling class too much, or else they'll overthrow you and put put in one of them the, their own as king. And you can't you can't um, you can't oppress the the masses too much. Otherwise, they they might revolt or they might uh, stop paying their taxes or stop going to war. And so, at least the impression I get is that despite despite whatever flaws are in that system, which can hopefully be like taken into account and adapted, that in certain metrics, in certain important metrics, um, that monarchy is like the least bad option. For, for those things. It's like Peterson often says that, you know, Western liberal democracy is the least bad option, mm -hmm. uh, like Quentin Churchill, I think, but, uh, but maybe not in certain, in certain ways. Um, so like I said, I'm not gonna, I don't have uh, a total mastery of, of all the material or all his arguments, so I can't get into too much detail. And I'm sure I, you know, <laughs> messed up some stuff yeah. and didn't represent it totally, but, that's all to just say that um, his solution in this book was a, a neo-reactionary solution. And he basically, he quotes this guy I hadn't heard of before, kind of like, sounds like an internet, uh, an, an, well, partly anonymous, I think his real name's out there, like internet commentator who writes on topics like this, often in a, like almost a trollish, sarcastic manner, but has some good ideas. And he talks about things like this. And so the four ideas that McConkie puts together based on this other guy's work and his own stuff. Well, oh yeah, the, the guy he quotes is Mencius Moldbug, um, real name Curtis Yarvin, who's written some stuff on this. And he's written a work called Patchworks. And Patchworks is kind of like, uh, I think it's putting together all the, um, how does he define Patchworks? It's um, the essential inspiration for patchwork is the observation that the periods in which human civilization has flowered are the periods in which it has been most politically divided. Um, blah, blah, blah. Oh, it's not the quote I was looking for, but whatever. Um, but the four, the four kind of principles that he, that he argues need to be 
needs need to be put into this kind of near reactionary solution are what he calls sovereign primogeniture primogenitor. So he, he's basically saying we should bring back, you know, there should be a king or a monarch or a CEO, whatever you want to call it. And there should be um, that, that the right to that position should pass to like the first son. There should be a clear line of succession mm-hmm. because then even though it's kind of, you're playing, um, you're rolling the dice with the, mm-hmm. with the genetics of that son or that daughter or whoever, however it's set up. Um, at the same time, so you could get a totally average person, you know, you t- chances are, or you could get a, a sub-average person, but the, but the advantages are that at least that person can be trained from a young age. Mm-hmm. And at least um, if you start out with a, a good king, at least the, um, there's less chance of basically someone you don't want coming in and taking over with a totally different agenda. If you have a normal person with, who has relatively normal kids, then hopefully, you know, it's again, hopefully it's the least bad option. Um, but there are other reasons why he, ar- he argues that that's a, that was actually a good institution, like a, an even, well, oh, that's all I'll say. Porous polyarchy. Um, so basically the idea that the king should basically be a landowner, own all the land, and then he can only make, his, only make money on taxes. Now, the, in- the incentive structure that he works into there is that um, there should be total freedom of movement. Well, not total. So if you're involved in a lawsuit or you've broken the law or something in some, in some way, you know, maybe you can't leave the country. But if you're, the, the way that you protest is to just leave and go to another kingdom. And the, the king is incentivized to bring people into the country because he wants tax money. He wants land, land tax. So the king is incentivized to, to make the country as livable as possible, high standard of living, et cetera, to, to make people want to come to the country because people will be free to leave if they don't like it. And they'll be free to leave to any other of these tiny kingdoms. And then he has no money. And um, so that's one aspect. Market-based land tax, I mentioned that. And then um, a kind of more theoretical one I won't get into, weapon cryptographic authorization as a way of uh, you know, preventing you know, preventing Trump from getting the, his finger on the nuclear war button. Uh, <laughs> but like I said, it's kind of just a sketch. So I'd be interested in. Are you saying you want uh, Trump to be our first benevolent no. dictator and king? No. Yes, and Baron, Baron Trump would be the successor. <laughs> That's what, not a, what I'm saying. What a name, too. Baron. Yeah, Baron. <laughs> Emperor Baron. <laughs> Baron, Emperor Baron. Emperor. Well, there, there was one point that you made several minutes ago about the, um, the will of the people mm-hmm. and <clears throat> how that seems to be a, um, a kind of a, uh, an insemination um, uh, or inception of um, feelings and thoughts that maybe the vast majority of people don't even have. But, but because this this message, you know, this is your will, this is what you want to occur, equality, diversity, et cetera, et cetera, then we're going, we're going to be your champions. And um, for, for those who are questioning the way that, that this uh, will of the people has been <clears throat> foisted upon the will of the people, uh, there's another dynamic at work, and that is the, the and this is where all of this gets pretty brilliant in an evil sort of a way. 
uh, anyone who disagrees with um, with how this uh, this will of the people gets implemented and what's actually behind it and what its logical ends are, as you were suggesting before, Adam, um, <clears throat> must be in fact uh, the enemy of enemy the will of, of the people. people. And, and that's where it, it gets really um, psychologically, uh, this is, this is uh, gaslighting and manipulation and really um, terrorizing, uh, psychological terrorizing of uh, a great number of, of normies that, um, or just normal everyday, normally adjusted healthy people uh, get uh, victimized. Um, so there are all of these dynamics at work that go to, uh, towards, um, towards pushing these projects forward that we're seeing simultaneously that, um, you know, it's like, you know, a, a football or a soccer or a basketball team, um, has an offense and they have a defense. So we're, you know, we, we have to, uh, defend our own minds effectively from the, um, the, the comments and the, you know, the, the, the subtle innuendos and the conversations that we have with, with people who have already adopted for themselves without necessarily realizing it, uh, this position that, um, that these movements would have people take. Uh, and it's, it can be a very subtle thing. And sometimes it's not so subtle because as soon as you are induced to defend a position, if, if you should engage in a discussion with somebody, uh, then, then what happens is, you know, in the face of all of the rational data and logic and reason that you can muster to, to support a given position on, on any number of things, you become representative uh, of, of this, this, you know, evil in society because you're not part of the, the groupthink that's being, you know, normalized. And really, I think a lot of people are just conforming to a lot of these ideas because they're scared shitless. Uh, you know, well, well, obviously, you know, we've heard this a hundred times already and discussed it. Uh, the, you know, the forward troops, the pawns, the, the proxy warriors on social media, um, in, in, in media in general, um, they have been activated and they are, and, and a, and a lot of people out of fear of, of being demonized or considered um, backward or uninformed are conforming, uh, maybe even afraid to consider uh, in any serious way what the implications are of, of, these, of what's occurring. It's, it's far more comfortable to uh, go along than to, you know, to get along. So... Um, you know, I, I see uh, I see looking at this information in a personal way and how I am operating in the world and how I am responding to certain things as uh, as crucial to my um, my assimilation of this information how am I how am I to take this what 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 are the things that I can take away with me when I'm uh, when I'm out there, 
or, or talking to people or, or just realize that someone in my sphere or outside of my sphere or someone who used to be in my sphere has gone, um, has really gone a, a little nuts with all of this information. Uh, you know, there's a tendency to, to react, to, to get upset, to want to correct it. And, and yet, you know, how much does that invite a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of trouble in some cases, uh, especially when people are seem to be two or three or four uh, degrees of of uh, understanding from any of this information, and um, these are some of the questions I have as uh, as we move forward on on this topic. Well, the thing to do is just to yell on Twitter. Just yell. Do Yell it. on Twitter. I think that's the only solution. Um, is that solution. It's, it's a fine solution. No yes. one has ever found a better solution. Okay, trust <laughs> me. No one's better I've, than I've me. seen it. No one's better than me <laughs> <laughs> at that solution. Well, um, I just wanted to make one more point, kind of also commenting on current events about the the nature of the the managerial class and the way they operate, the Machiavellian way they, they do it. We used a few words like mask of sanity and ventriloquism and basically like, uh, is cowbird politician another one? Uh, Martha Stout used that one. I can't remember the exact way in which she used it. But um, basically fakers, you know, mm -hmm. fakers and liars. And one of the things about the, the way that they operate is that they can use anything. Um, like when I was mentioning artificial negativity, like co-opted opposition, they can create an opposition and then co-opt that opposition. And you look at all of the, all of the so-called counterculture movements in the last, in the, in the West, and especially mm -hmm. in the U S over the last 70 years. Um, and you look at the hands of the CIA behind them, for instance, with different, uh, you know, different artists, different art movements. And of course, you know, um, radical political groups that are all infiltrated by the FBI or the, or the mm -hmm. CIA or whatever. Um, basically the, one of the messages, take home messages for me for, in regard to that is that the managerial managerial class can use any issue, whether real or imagined to, for their own purposes. And so in the context of COVID, for instance, COVID could be like exactly as they say it is, everything, they could be telling the complete truth about everything and it would work, or they could be lying about a whole bunch of stuff and it would still work. You know, both situations work because that any situation can be manipulated and used for the, for, for the ends that we're seeing, which are pretty much like, you know, in, in many countries taking total absolute control over everything. And it is a managerial, mm -hmm. um, takeover where who, who are the people in charge? Well, it's not people we elect who are in charge. And, um, some cases it's, it's the people who we, who we elect who are, um, doing what someone else tells them to do or, or who are just looking at public opinion polls and you get this, this, um, um, this vicious cycle of media, um, like media stirring up the population yeah, who then want want more oppressive policies and the politicians are just like oh i guess i have to do what the what the people want and then it just circles back and then you've got the people 
a whole bunch of people who actually benefit from it who aren't necessarily the people or the at least the the majority class and uh so yeah so the managerial class uh can't live with them can't live without them without them yeah that uh, that's a good point that uh you know you need managers the point is they just shouldn't be the ones in charge <laughs> yeah um, they've got a place to play. They've always, they've always been there, um, but they've used ideologies like Marxism and like fascism or um, like distorted liberalism or, you know, the managerial form of liberalism to, to gain like total supremacy. And um, maybe there's a better way to do it. So um, unless you guys had any final comments, We'll leave it there. Again, we've been talking about the work of Michael McConkie, two of his books, Darwinian Liberalism and the Managerial Class on Trial, and his new substack, The Circulation of Elites. We'll put links to his work in the show description below. And uh, it's good talking again. Uh, we'll be back soon. Take care. <laughs>